0: Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible-teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg.
1: And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite. No king in Israel, way before Saul ever came out of the picture, way before David, not, not too far along before David and, or Saul and David came along, but it was before there was a monarchy. And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like America, except we have a president in office, but yet our culture is such that you wouldn't know that we had any governance. Sometimes you look around and you see the, the nature, maybe even over your own heart. Oh my
0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Truth in Christ Radio with Pastor Rob Kellogg. Today we begin in chapter 19 in the book of Judges. Our lesson begins once again with the description of the state of the nation of Israel at that time. The scripture says, There was no king in Israel. This sets the stage for the terrible story in the following chapters. No king in Israel meant more than the absence of a political monarch. It also meant that they refused to recognize God's leadership over them. What unfolds in the rest of this chapter is so distasteful that the commentator F.B. Meyer recommended not reading it. It's depravity run amok. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's study.
1: Judges chapter 19. Last week we looked at... Judges seventeen and eighteen, and it really spoke of just a, a gentleman by the name of Micah who lived in the mountains of Ephraim, and he was a uh, an idolater, and he had idols. And a man from uh, Benjamin, in, or Bethlehem, from Judah, came to him, a Levite, and became his priest. When all of this was really taboo, because the the tabernacle was in Shiloh, and there was an established place of worship, and These gentlemen decided, this gentleman, Micah, decided to have his own center of worship. And he had a Levite as his priest, so he felt somewhat qualified or somehow felt um, like things were going well for him because he had a Levite as his priest, even though he was doing something uh, very wrong, very wrong. And then we read about how the tribe of Dan, on their way, uh, in their dissatisfaction with the land that God had given them and the difficulty that they had in the land, in the, in the allotment of land that they had received, because the Ammonites uh, were... Um, Keeping them, and because they didn't follow through with God's command to destroy the inhabitants of the land, which they were supposed to do, and they did not. And as a result of that, the enemy became more stronger than they were, and so they got discouraged and they decided to go find another place to dwell. Some of the people stayed where God told them to be, and a good majority of them went up north to Laish, up in the northern part of Israel, and we talked about that. And they called that place Laish initially, but eventually it got renamed to Dan, and you recall that they had a center of idolatrous worship up there, and we talked about Jeroboam. How in later years Jeroboam set up one of the one of two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and um, and so we talked about that. So now, when we get into chapter 19, we see more of the, the the same kind of climate during this time period. In the time of the judges, it was really. Uh, an unfortunate time for the children of Israel. It could have been called a time of failure, uh, a period of failure, because they had walked away from the Lord, and they were doing their own thing. In fact, in several parts of, um, in in four different places, actually, in the book of Judges, it, it gives this commentary, and it says, "...and it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel." And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And we see that four different times in this, in this book of, that we had before us. And so it was a time of idolatry. It was a time of rebellion. And It wasn't Israel's shiniest moment. In fact, it was their darkest part of their history, one of the darkest parts of their history. And we know that Dan, as we saw last week, was really the instigator, really the forerunner of this idolatry that ultimately, ultimately, it led them those northern ten tribes, into captivity in 722 B.C. under the Assyrians, right? And unfortunately, her sister, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, they looked up at their sister and and thought, wow, isn't it great that they got all that freedom? They're so progressive. They can do whatever they want, and somehow God seems to be okay with it because hundreds of years goes by, and, 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 and seemingly there's nothing wrong with it. And so Judah and Benjamin, they adopt the same sinful practices. And isn't it true? That sometimes when we don't see God judging something immediately, we think it's his, he's um, condoning a behavior. But we we fail to remember that God is a God of grace and he's very patient. He's very patient, especially with a nation. Sometimes he gives a long time for our nation to turn. But there does come a time when judgment has to be meted out because God is a God of love, he's a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And so we see how that influence uh, influenced the southern two tribes, and they ultimately got led into captivity in 606 B.C. to the Babylonians. So you see how one tribe's rebellion, their beginning of it, how it infected the whole nation, like that scripture that we know so well, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It leavens the whole lump. And so we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 19 tonight, and we're going to see more of the same here. And I would like to um, say this before we get started. Um, This chapter is one of the most difficult chapters, no doubt, in the Bible because of its graphic nature. So I want to encourage you, for those who are online or even for those of you who are here uh, for young, younger folks, they, they might want to reconsider being here, um, only because we're going to talk about some adult themes. Okay, so I wanted to warn you in advance because uh, these are things that are in the Word of God, and I love how God doesn't see fit to—he doesn't see fit to sanitize His Word. He he makes sure that he tells us the truth. Most people, I remember one time when I was talking to someone about the gospel, and this is a very educated person, actually she went to uh, Duke University and she had her doctorate and I remember talking to her about the Bible and she wouldn't even want to talk to me about it because she said, and she was bringing up uh, a chapter like the one we're looking at tonight because she said the Bible's filled with all of this idolatry and all of these awful things. And at the time, I was a young Christian. I didn't have the wits about me at that time to really address that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't disagree with her. But I didn't have it in me to really explain it why like I could now. See, God makes sure that he, we understand what we're capable of. It's almost like he shows us, this is who you are. And by the way, this is who I am. And look at that great gulf in between. And the whole Bible is a... Book of Redemption from beginning to end, this great gap that's in between uh, us, a sinful people born in sin, and then this wonderful creator who is perfect in all things and this great gap in between and the, all the Bible is building this bridge and that break in the center of that bridge is Jesus Christ on a cross but the but the the Bible is very clear about these things because we need to see them and, and agree with them because when we look at these things that we 're looking at tonight we'll see a lot of humanity. We'll we'll even see the depths of our soul. And, And doesn't it say in the Bible that these things were written for our nurture and our admonition? They're written there for our learning. And I need to learn about myself, and I need to be honest with myself. And the Bible doesn't allow me to escape that narrative. I must face my own sin. And this chapter is really ugly. It's one of the ugliest chapters. And so one of the things, uh, well, let's just go ahead and get into it here. In chapter 19, it speaks about the Levite's concubine. And it says, it came to pass in those days, and here's our often uh, refrain, it's almost like a chorus to a song, except this chorus, unfortunately, is not a very good one. Don't you love a song when you get to it, and the hook you know, the verse is going along and then there's this really great hook into the chorus and you're like, man, that just is so awesome, especially when you're singing alone in the car and you're at the stoplight and you're singing your guts out and you look over next to you and you've got a whole family going, because you got your mouth open and you're like, does that ever happen to you? It only happens to me? Okay. It happens to you? Okay. All right. I don't feel so bad. But anyway, this is like uh, a really bad chorus because it keeps coming back and this is the chorus. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite, no king in Israel, way before Saul ever came out of the picture, way before David, not, not too far along before David and, or Saul and David came along, but it was before there was a monarchy. And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Sounds a lot like America, except we have a president in office but Yet, our culture is such that you wouldn't know that we had any governance. Sometimes you look around and you see the the nature, maybe even over your own heart. But certainly you look at the news and you're like, there is so much craziness, there's so much discord, there's so much rebellion, and such is the nature of man and I believe as we look at this chapter and and in a few hours, we'll get to that chapter. I'm only kidding. As we get into this chapter, I want you to see, and as we've been going through the book of Judges, actually, I, I think it's true that we can see our own country in a lot of these things, just a failure, failing. Right now we're floundering. We're failing, folks. And I think partly the reason why we're failing is, could it be that we, the church, need to wake up? Could it be that we, as a church, and I'm not just saying us here at Calvary Chapel of Rochester I mean across our country the church Many churches are playing games. They're in it for the money. They're doing it for the show, whatever it is. And they they have their own motives. And hopefully their motive is Jesus. But anything that's not, if the motive is anything other than Jesus, we need to get back to business. We need to get back to why we're here, what God created us for, and what we're supposed to be doing. And we have to get serious in this walk that we have with him because we live in a culture that is lulling us to sleep. It's been lulling us to sleep ever since the church began. America is a unique, unique system. We are very blessed. We are extremely blessed. We are so blessed. We don't even know how blessed we're at. We are. I remember going to Europe in 1990 when I was a 19, 20-year-old. And with a travel study group. And I'll never forget when I... When we went over to Europe and we've seen all of Europe in a whole month, we, we, we hit literally every country nearly, and all the museums, all the cathedrals, very cultural. Uh, it was an awesome trip. But I came back and I literally, when, I land, when we landed in Miami, I kissed the ground when I got off the plane. Because I realized for all the culture, we were in such a, we, we had it made. I mean, we, we don't have a lot of great culture like Europe does, but we have it made. We've got every convenience known to man. So we need to really be careful. Be careful. And to be a Christian in this environment is very hard. It's easy, and that's what makes it really crazy. That's where we've got to be really careful. And so as we're going through this, I hope that you... Um, I haven't drawn a lot of parallels between the book of Judges and America, but we're, you know, I'm doing it now because I, I think we can see it. But there was no king in Israel, and, everyone, and there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. One thing you have to realize is, as we get into this chapter, this Levite that we're talking about, who's living in the mountainous regions of Ephraim, this is not the same one that we were looking at two chapters ago. Okay, this is a whole different thing, a whole different individual Although the names are same, the, similar, and so it leads us to believe that maybe there, there's some similarity, but there, there isn't. So this um, Levite is different. He also came from Bethlehem, Judah, as did the other Levite in chapter 17 that we were looking at. But it says that he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem, Judah. A concubine is literally a woman who lives with a man, but has a lower status than his wife or wives. And it's very common in the Middle East at this time, in the Near East is really what they're called, for kings and rulers to have more than one wife, polygamy, polygamy. In fact, we know that Solomon was one of those polygamists, even though God had told him over and over again, in the, in the law, it was written that they should not have more than one wife, really. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon, he had not only 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women in his life. How many days are there in a year? 365. That's like going out to lunch with three of them every year or every day. Hey, how you doing? What's what's your name again? You know, so it's a little crazy, but this was never endorsed by the Lord at all, um, at all. In Deuteronomy 17, just, you know, uh, it, it speaks of this, God gave commandment concerning kings as uh, God would raise up kings in Israel. These were some of the qualifiers of a king. It says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around you. You shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren who shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not notice. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not turn that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And all three of these things Solomon did. He had a horse stable. If you go to Israel with us up in Megiddo, you actually see this horse stables that he kept, these, uh, this fleet of horses, one of them. One of his horse stables was there in Megiddo that we see. And he multiplied wives to himself, 700 wives, 300 concubines, did exactly what the Lord told him not to do. And yet the Bible says that he was one of the most wisest men that ever lived. And he did. He started off great, didn't he? Solomon is a wonderful example of somebody who starts off really well. But as he went on in his life and the, the success and God speaking to him, and all of a sudden he thinks he's something. And then the wives come along and they turn his heart away. Exactly what the Bible foretold hundreds of years before he would be born. God says, Solomon, if this happens, the, your wives are going to take your heart away from me. And I'm sure at the time he thought, no, it's not going to happen. But it did happen. And when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's sort of like his coming full circle and saying, you know what? Everything I did was vanity. It was emptiness without God. It's a great way to turn around because that book is really good for us because he was richer than Bill Gates. He was richer than Bezos. He needed the wisdom of God, and God gave it to him, but he walked away from God for a season. But notice, it says that this concubine played the harlot against him. This concubine played the harlot against him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And she was there for four whole months. Now, according to the law, she should have been killed, right? Because a harlot in Israel was not to be tolerated. Even among those, and this woman was from Bethlehem. So she was from Bethlehem. And here she is, a concubine, playing the harlot against the man who she was with. And would to God that our culture valued and protected the sexual purity of themselves and their kids. You know, some parents are turning a blind eye to things and allowing their teenage boys or teenage girls to just explore. After all, if it feels good, do it. That kind of mentality And just as this woman was playing the harlot in Israel, and there was a death sentence on her for that, we look at our own culture and we see the same thing. Young girls, their parents, putting them on birth control just in case they make a mistake, just in case they don't want them to ruin their life or to ruin their career. And I understand that. I really do understand that. But what are you saying to a young person, a young lady, when you hand her birth control and she grows up in the church? And there are Christians with teenage girls who do these things. And I understand it from the heart. I understand why. But it's wrong. The message that it's sending is, yes, abstinence and waiting until you're married, that's all fine and good. But, you know, you're human. You make a mistake. Well, you know what? People have been making those mistakes for thousands of years. Shouldn't we honor the Word of God and and, and and rise to the occasion and not candy coat things and just, you know, act like this is okay. This is okay. No, we need to be firm. I, I believe we need to be firmer. We can't allow our kids to grow up in a godless environment because so many people are doing it. And it's interesting that this priest would even after he discovered that this concubine was playing the harlot against him. In Leviticus 21, it says that, speaking of the regulations and the conduct of priests, they were not to take a wife who was a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. And certainly after he found out she was, he still pursued her, which there is some, there's a wonderful heart about that. He didn't immediately take her to the gavel. Or to the, didn't take her to the, the guillotine. <laughs> you know, he had a heart, and he, but at the same time, it, it shows how, um, even though there seems like compassion in that, there can also be a great compromise. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, There shall be no ritual harlot to the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. And so we go on into verse 3 here, and it says, Then her husband, he arose, and he went after her. So she takes off for four months. She goes back down to Bethlehem in Judah. He's in Ephraim. He goes and he finds her. She's with her dad for four months. He finds, he finds that she's been unfaithful to him probably several times. But he goes after her nonetheless. Probably loved her. And it's kind of interesting. I say that with an asterisk because as we get closer and get farther on into the chapter... I really wonder where this guy was at, to be honest with you. you you'll see what we, what I mean when we get there. But her husband arose, and he went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And that, that certainly is a, a good thing. Having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him, and so she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. He's probably thinking, take my daughter, please. <laughs> she was yours, and now she's back again. Or maybe he was glad to see his daughter. I hope that that was the case. But now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. And so they ate, and they drank, and they lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day that he rose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and then afterward go your way. And so they sat down, and the two of them ate, and they drank together. And then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. I mean, who could refuse that? You know you've got a long journey ahead of you, at least, you know, several hours, especially from where he lives. Could be an all-day thing, and rough terrain. Why not stay an extra day in, on this guy's dime? <laughs> He's going to feed you. <laughs> He's going to be hospitable to, to you. And you get to talk, and hang out. Anybody here doesn't like to talk and hang out and be fed? You don't, Scott? You don't like to do that? Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, we all do. It's it's nice to fellowship, and what better thing to do than to do it around a meal? So they sat down. The two of them ate and drank together. And the young woman's father said to the man, "Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry." In verse seven, and when the man st- stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him. So he lodged there again. Then he arose early on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. Can you can you see how this goes? And see, we, we don't understand this kind of culture because it's foreign to us, because we don't really live in this kind of culture. But back in this time, hospitality was everything. It was really held to a high, high place. And it was a good reflection upon you if you offered hospitality. And you wanted to... Refer-